I began last Lord's Day evening uh, preaching in Psalm 127. We'll finish there tonight. Psalm 127, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. His arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. May the Lord bless his word. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us such clear and vivid pictures of your work and your word and what we should be. Lord, I pray you bless us all tonight, every home, every child, those who are praying for grandchildren and children and those yet unborn. Oh, Lord, you've given us your word and the foundation. Build strong, strong homes, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we learned last week, Psalm 127 is one of 15 psalms that is referred to as a song of degrees. And while Bible teachers disagree as to exactly what that means, it seems to indicate that it was a song that the pilgrims sang, or one of the songs they sang is they came to Jerusalem for the holy feasts and the different convocations that God ordained that his people should come. As they neared city in Jerusalem, the city, Jerusalem was always situated as up, and they referred to it as up. They, as they progressed up toward Jerusalem, they would sing various songs, and this was one of them. That seems very likely. It's a psalm that would be chosen for that because it's about the home and family. And families would travel together, as we saw in that beautiful picture, the only snapshot we get of the Lord Jesus as a boy in his home. They had come to celebrate to Passover, celebrate the feast. And uh, on the way back, his uh, earthly parents found out that he was not with them. You can imagine a 13-year-old boy. And they traveled in groups. He was overlooked. They went back and found him. And so that was one of the psalms, no doubt, that they had been singing as they came up uh, to Jerusalem. The analogy here is clear. We see, and often the analogy of building is given in the Scripture. And here the Holy Spirit illustrates for us the building of a home. This is a, a family. The theme is clearly that of the family. And so when he talks about building the house, it's building a household. When he's talking about a watchman guarding a city, it is that family uh, of the Lord, that your family and, and God's family. I gave my outline last week, in verse 1, we have a precept, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. A proposition in verse 2, it is vain for you to rise up early to sit up late. If you're going to ignore the clear teaching and instruction of the Lord and leave His Word out, you're, you're, it's useless, it's vain what you're doing. The, the, the third thing we see in verse 3, a privilege given. Lo, children, what a privilege it is for the Lord to give to our homes children to raise. And the fruit of the womb is His reward. Then we have a picture in verse 4. Aren't you glad the Lord gives us pictures to illustrate his truth? And here we have a man who has made his arrows. He's found them the, the, the strongest and the straightest arrows that he can find, and yet they still need dressing and whittling and sharpening. 
to be made exactly to hit the, the target, the bullseye. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, a skilled archer. And that shows you, parents, you need to be skilled. You need to study uh, your children and study parenting and study God's Word. Uh, we study everything on earth except sometimes the most important things. A mighty man is one who's, who's adept at what he's doing. He has a goal. He knows what he's aiming for. He's not just, just uh, shooting for, at, at nothing. You heard about the little boy who was shooting a slingshot at the moon. The, the man came by and said, well, you'll never reach that. He said, I'll get a lot closer than you will. He knows what his goal is, and a mighty man knows his goal and is aiming toward it. In verse 5, we have a promise. I love the promises of God's word. Happy is a man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed. They shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Verse 1, we see there, often is carved, I'm told, in Latin above old country houses in England. In the Latin is nisi dominus frustra. Except the Lord build the house, all is vain. The psalmist is saying, it is a waste of time to try to do something so important. We have plans for building buildings and very detailed plans for doing so. The most important thing that will ever be built is the immortal soul, the raising of children. And he's saying it is useless, is a waste of time to do something without the Lord's blessing, without his instruction, except the Lord build the household. They're laboring in vain. Now, we don't mind work if we know that, that something is going to come of it, even hard work. But if we ever get in our mind that what we're doing is absolutely futile and will avail nothing, that's a very discouraging thing, isn't it? And so here the Lord tells us it is hard work building. There's nothing easy about building. And there's nothing about building a building or anything really that's, that's simple about it takes work, labor. And to think that all of that is wasted, what a tragedy that is. And yet I look all around, I see educated families, well-to-do families, and I see waste, a wasteland. What a grievous thing that is. Now, the word except there, it begins with a flashing light, a warning, except. This is a sober warning, a condition, an exception clause. And I would just want to pause here and ask us, are we using God's blueprint? The Lord has not left us here. We're not like, can you imagine Noah building the ark without a plan? The Lord gave him detailed plans and, and gave within him the insight to do that. The Lord, likewise, has given us a detailed plan and the insight to follow him and to do what he said to do. John Phillips writes in his commentary on Psalms, When Solomon began to build the house of God, he had no lack of materials. David had seen to that. David could not build the temple, but he would certainly give. And then Solomon set to work. He drafted 30,000 Hebrews and sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 at a time, to cut wood. Massive stones were quarried, shaped, and transported to Jerusalem for the foundation. All that wealth could command, all that skill and craftsmanship could devise within the framework of the blueprint, all that zeal and enthusiasm could do, went into the building of that house. It was the supreme work of Solomon's life. Much else that Solomon did 
became tainted and sold, but not the temple. Never was there a richer temple, fragrant and beautiful wood of cedar, gold, silver, precious stones, rich in royal, lavish fabrics, all went into that temple. Yet Solomon, young, full of zeal, devoted to the task, was able to say, when he came to this psalm, if the Lord is not building the house, it's absolutely vain. He knew a little bit about building, didn't he? I'm sure he had that glorious building in mind when he was talking about a greater building than that, the the people of God. Little did he know what its history would be. He could not have foreseen the neglect, the outright pollution that would disgrace this lovely and holy place. Little did he think in those golden days of his youth of the vile things he himself in his old age would import into Jerusalem. How those things would take root and flourish until in the end God himself would walk out of that temple and hand it over to the Babylonians to be sent up in flames. No amount of hard work or labor while ignoring God's word will bring about true and lasting blessing in spiritual areas. And yet, we see people all around who act as if it doesn't matter that any materials will do and that God is not so strict as to, 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 to allow us or force us to go by his word. But how clear this psalm is in the matter of building homes. Amazing how little time it takes to tear down something. I have often been interested in watching the dismantling of buildings. And when I first came here uh, on staff uh, in 1980, around the corner here where this group of apartments are, those two groups, there's an uh, U-shaped group and there's another group right there, where all that was was an absolutely glorious mansion, not unlike the ones down in the park down there. It probably was one of the most, until that time, beautiful homes I'd ever been in. And when I went in it, they were about to, they were tearing it down. It was in neglect. The parquet floors all around the edges was intricate, uh, woven, carved in the wood, inlaid around the, the... Every room had a border of this absolute glorious inlay, uh, entwined as if it was woven material, but it was all in wood. There was a music room. There was a library. And you, the, the rooms were just soaring. And I remember thinking... Those who built and spent and lavished all and, and, and spared no expense in the construction of that building on that glorious lot there. It was absolutely beautiful. Uh, you, you, they never dreamed in 1900 or 1899 when that wealthy family chose that spot. And this, the first suburb of Birmingham, this luscious, uh, beautiful tree-lined area that that home would be torn down and and what would be in its place. Well, nothing is permanent, is it? Not even Solomon's temple is there. And while he lavished nothing, he, he could not imagine what it, it took no time for them to tear down that house. I guarantee you it took months and months and months to construct it. The plaster, the carving, all that went into it. 
We often see on the news a, a building being imploded, you know, in these buildings downtown where they're about to build something else, a, a several-story building. I think of the, the horrible picture of the, trade ti- the, the, the Twin Towers that just melted before our very eyes. How long it took to, to erect those buildings, the steel, the work that went into it, the labor that went into it, and it melted before our very eyes. It doesn't take very long to tear up something. It takes effort and labor and prayer to build a family, but it doesn't take very long at all to tear it down. Warren Wiersbe says many... A child in many a ministry has been lost to the enemy because the watchman didn't stay awake and warned them that the enemy was approaching. Building and battling go together. If parents, teachers, and church leaders do not courageously maintain the walls and guard against the enemy, our building will be in vain. In vain. I have some notes here from a message preached by Vody Balkman. And he points out the biblical view of marriage. And I was just wondering as I was reading through these notes, do you truly have a biblical worldview of the family, of home, of marriage, of rearing children? We are wrong today on marriage because... When you preach about it, you know how I can tell that we are absolutely off base? When you preach the biblical standard, people look at you like you're from another planet. When you hear what God says about rearing children, people act like that's something from somewhere else, some other foreign place. But in all things, we must ask the question, what saith the Lord? Does it matter what is acceptable and what society has come to think is normal? the most basic teaching of marriage and children, society thinks is crazy. Most Christians are influenced by culture instead of by the Word of God, sad to say. More than they realize. You ought to test yourself sometimes on your biblical worldview. You may be listening more to Fox News than you are to the, the Word of God. You may be getting your your information from places that may not align themselves with the Word of God. I have nothing against Fox News. I'm just saying more people get their information from Hollywood and TV than they do from the Word of God. Today, society worships education, even Christian homes. I think of the joke where a woman, one of these women who had it all figured out, she's walking down the road with her two boys, about 10 and about 6, and someone said, what, how old is your son? Your, your, your boy, she said, which one, the lawyer or the doctor? You'll get it in a minute. She already had it planned out, didn't she? she? That was what her goal was for them. Ask parents if they care about where this child goes to college, and they said, of course I care where my, school, where my child goes to college. And here's the plan. They've got a game plan. They can tell you and lay, lay aside the, the route that they want that child to to take, but if you were to ask those same parents, how have you prepared, what are you doing to prepare your son or your daughter to be a godly husband or wife or parent? And they will look at you like, what are you talking about? As if that is gotten by osmosis from coming and sitting on Sunday night to someone preach on the family. Or by being in a godly family, while those things are certainly true, I think of the time in the effort that people spend in educational plans 
without thinking about, I'm raising this child to be a mate one day, probably. Maybe not every child will be, but by, by and large that will be. And not only that, but a parent, a mother or a father who will be teaching another generation or not the things of the Lord. We wonder about these things. Our, our number one calling in life is to prepare our children, to be ready for whatever God has for them, not what you have for them, but what God has for them, and to be godly men and women. The culture is to prepare them for college and bows at the shrine of education. And while we certainly are for education, we have a a vital ministry of education here, and I've given my life over to education. But you can be educated and know how to diagram a sentence and work a, a, a geometry theorem and do all kinds of things and be ignorant as to the ways of the Lord. The culture prepares them for college. Christianity prepares them for, for godly parenting and being a godly mate. Is that what you really want for your children? I wonder sometimes if some Christian parents, if that's what they want. Society views children as a nuisance, don't they? There are all kinds of jokes about it. The Bible, as we've read in our text here, views children as a blessing. The highest blessing that the Lord can give to a home is a, a, a child. Oh, we need a biblical worldview. Do you know, and I don't want it all get political here tonight or to tell someone how many children to have or anything like that. That's none of my business. Do you know what the number one most used boy's name in the world is today? It is Muhammad. Do you know how many children on the average, those who would use that name, how many they have on the average? It's six children. And in the Western world, the countries of France and uh, England and even the United States, it's more like two or one point something. You don't have to be a mathematician to find out that if we're not replacing our, our population, which, by the way, is the number one mandate that God gave to his people, which, by the way, tells us what the definition of true marriage is because only a husband and a wife and a man and a woman can produce, be fruitful, and multiply. The Bible answers itself and tells you exactly what marriage is. We don't have to ask the Supreme Court. God has spoken. And His mandate was be fruitful and multiply. But many people have listened to the, the overpopulation experts and all those kinds of people and, and Christians even have adapted that philosophy. And it's grieving. The lowest in the world is the country of Italy, and the Italian government is actually paying its citizens to have children. They give them a tax break for having children. No matter, no wonder what it's going to be in the, in the days to come. We've turned our back on God's plan. And seeing God's blessing as a curse or a bother instead of a, a heritage from the Lord. It is empty, it is vain for you to rise up early and to sit up late. I think of the people who 
rise up early and sit up late writing papers and getting education. I realize that. I understand that. My wife and I were in graduate school together. Our children were little bitty, and uh, it was difficult days. Our plates were full, but we made that sacrifice. We, we felt it was the Lord's will for us both, and uh, I know what it's like. I understand that, and I'm not in any way uh, talking down about advanced degrees and all those things. I'm just talking about what our priority is. Where do we put our emphasis? I will say that there came a time in my Education. Well, I had some lifelong goals that uh, there was a, a situation in our family that I had to put that on hold because the rearing of my children was more important than a terminal degree that I was pursuing. And I'm not saying that to exalt me above anyone. I'm just telling you, what is the most important thing? The souls that God has entrusted in our, our care and their well-being is far more important than degrees and letters behind your, your name. A proposition is given there to us. Is it rising up late, rising up early and sitting up late, is it to, to have a more expensive home? Most people choose where they live, so they, the neighborhood, so that their children's education, that's where most people choose their home. And most people work is to pay for a certain kind of home in a certain kind of neighborhood. A better or better status symbols, or is it for the spiritual welfare of your children? Look at the privilege there he gives us. Lo, when you see that word in the scripture, it's always look, lo, behold. And the Holy Spirit is calling our attention to a, a blessing from the Lord. It would be a blessing if he did not preface it with that word low. But when the Holy Spirit does that, you better circle and underline a blessing is to follow. Low children. This is God's final answer and definition to the whole thing. Low children are God's inheritance. Children are inheritance of the Lord. They're His reward. Look at what it says there in verse 3. The last two, the, the fruit of the womb is His reward. They're, it is His reward because only He can give them. Genesis 29 verse 31. And when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, He opened her womb. The Lord opens the womb every time a child is conceived. Proverbs 17, verse 6, Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their fathers. How sad that most people, it seems, don't believe that, don't think that. I want you to know, parents and grandparents, and those who know parents and grandparents, these little ones are on loan to us for a while. They're not yours. They'll be there a short period of time. And then what? We will stand in the great day, the judgment seat of Christ, and give an account for how we've invested in their immortal souls. I'm thinking of the parable of the talents. Whatever the Lord gives, He expects to return on His gift. Do you know that? He's very clearly given us lessons to that. The whole parable of the talents is that He gave... Each one a certain amount according to their several ability, to who, what he could trust, each one what they could handle. He knew what their life was going to be like. 
And he gave this one a certain amount, that one a certain amount, and that one a certain amount, all with the expectation of a return on his investment. Now, the Lord uses these terms. He uses the term inheritance and investment, a legacy. He's expecting a return, parents, on that soul he has loaned you and allowed you to bring into this world or to adopt, to rear, to bring up into the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And in the great day when he settles his accounts, what kind of return are we going to have? Aren't we glad that Hannah didn't think that children were a bother? I was thinking of the parents of, of Moses who went against the law and did not abort him. Some might not call the killing of babies after they're born abortion. Anytime you kill them, it's abortion. And it's the great crime of this nation. We will be gravely ju- We are being judged for because of it. You cannot murder and not be judged. Cruel, heartless, cold-blooded murder every time one of these babies are aborted. And they are immortal soul from the point of conception. We don't let the world define to us what God's Word says to be the case. We were preaching about... I was preaching about John the Baptist this morning. He leaped in his mother's womb and recognized the Messiah was in Mary's womb. You have no idea what a, what a child uh, knows and perceives. But I'll tell you one thing. The Scripture gives us some hints about that, doesn't it? And some might say John the Baptist was an exception. Every child is an exception. Every child is a miracle. Aren't you glad that Jochebed and Amram did not believe in abortion? Children are God's reward. F.W. Borum writes, When God sees that there in this poor old world a wrong that needs to be righted, or a truth that needs preaching, or a benefit he needs inventing, he sends a baby in the world to do it is why 2,000 years ago he sent a child to be born in Bethlehem and entrusted him to a mother and a father, frail human beings just like you and me, the Son of God, was entrusted to their care. That's God's perfect design. We cannot let Hollywood or the political correct Social engineers change what God's Word tells us a family is and a marriage is and what what it ought to be according to the Word of God. We see a picture here, a very accurate picture as in verse 4, as arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Now, I'm not an expert in this area, but I know for the little that I've tried that archery is not as easy as it looks. A bow and an arrow and hitting the bullseye on a target from a distance with an arrow, that's, that's, it takes a mighty person, a skilled person to do that. In fact, it's difficult to hit a bullseye. Have you ever tried to do it? Especially with arrows you've made. Arrows in the right hands, though, are a mighty weapon. Think of all the wars throughout history. They were won not with artillery that we think of today. Kingdoms have been won with arrows, mighty weapons in the hands of the right men who know what to do. Those arrows go where they're sent. 
There first must be a, a self-discipline of the archer. He trains and trains and trains, not only in building the bow and the arrow, but also in the practice of shooting and hitting the target. He has to learn how to direct that arrow. And that's the picture here for us as parents. We, we must learn how to direct our children. The Lord willing, I want to preach on that verse, which is so misused, so misinterpreted. Uh, rear up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. What does that mean? We must learn how to direct the arrow. I want to remind you as a preacher of the gospel, and I believe the whole gospel, the real gospel, and the gospel starts that we're totally and helpless depraved, lost sinners, fallen with the absolute inability to save ourselves, in absolute darkness, dead in our trespasses and sins. And I believe that with all my heart. Children are born sinners. You must know that the sweetest, most precious child will sin when they get old enough. They won't become a sinner at the point of their sinning. They will sin because they are sinners. It is in their DNA. They were born to you after all, weren't they? And you are. And your wife is. And they are. You know, I'm amazed that people often cringe when I preach like that. I've had mothers stiffen up and look at me like, not my baby. I've had grandmothers look cross-eyed at me and as if to say, my grandbaby is not like that, which is just an indication that they indeed are. <laughs> you wouldn't be cross-eyed and mad at me if you... You're mad, so you're a sinner. And so your baby, your grandbaby's a sinner. I know that much. I don't know a whole lot, but I do know that. They're not blank slates, as evolutionists would tell us, that you can make anything out of. They come programmed. It's amazing. You've seen it. Things they do and come up with and say, and where'd they get that? They got it from you, that's where they got it. And great-granddaddy, who they never knew, who had a bad temper, they have your DNA. Not only your nose and your eyes, but your sin nature. They are sinners in need of a Savior. Arrows must be carefully crafted with expertise and care, whittling and straightening that, 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 that stick to become straight so that it will hit the, the goal. And, and it takes sharpening and, and a sharp instrument to make them straight. It takes the sharpness, the surgery of the Word of God to do surgery on the inner man. The Word is alive, it's quick and it's powerful than any two-edged sword. It will pierce and divide asunder the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And that's the only thing that will save that depraved sinner that you're rocking to sleep tonight. You better sing Jesus loves you, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Point them to the Savior. And point them to his word that they have violated when they sin. I, I see it so often, parents say, you've broken my heart. Well, little Junior probably doesn't care whether he broke your heart or not. It's not your heart that's broken when they sin that's important. It's the law of God that's been broken. 
they've crossed the line, they've transgressed, if they've lied, the Bible says thou shalt not bear false witness. And you ought to tell them and show them the word of God that has been broken, not your feelings or your reputation. It seems to me that most parents just want moral little robots that will bring them praise and glory. Cross every T and dot every I and not get their ties dirty and their bows messed up in their hair. They want reformed sinners who perform on demand and make them look good instead of truly becoming repentant before God and regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. And that doesn't take reformation. It takes regeneration. And that takes a work of the Holy Spirit of God. And only the Word of God can do it. Your beautiful words and influence, as important as influence is, takes the power of the Holy Spirit, taking the Word of God and doing what only He can do. And God says it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Oh, parents, keep your children under the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where the gospel is preached and taught and instructed and lived, you won't hit the target with crooked arrows. Children who turn out loving the Lord with all their hearts and souls and minds is not done haphazardly. It's the most time-consuming, exhausting, important, eternal thing you will ever do. I want you to go home and write down on a piece of paper the things you're going to take to heaven with you. It will not be a long list. In fact, the only thing that you can put on that list that we know of are the souls of people. That's the only thing that's going to heaven. All that's going to heaven from this earth are souls. Not your bank account, not the degrees, not what you're laboring for, not your career, but souls. What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his soul? What would a man give in exchange for his soul? That's a high price tag, isn't it? And one little aborted baby is worth more than all the wealth of this world. One soul is of more greater value than all the real estate added up in this world. All the bank accounts, all the jewels, all the treasures, all the, the artwork. I read about a a painting. It was just an orange painting. Just orange paint. Anybody in our kindergarten could have painted it. It just sold recently for $130 million. I'm talking about just orange paint. $130 million. It's crazy, isn't it? Absolutely crazy. The art market. I I read about it because I'm interested in everything. One of the most ludicrous things in all the world. Who says that's worth $130 million? We know the price of everything, but not the value of the most important things. We study. We go to great extremes to become expert. In so many areas, we undergo self-denial to get an education or to advance in our career. But do we study 
our children or child rearing or what the Bible says about it. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, see here, look, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his payday, is his reward, his inheritance. His children are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is that man that hath his quiver full of them. Not what society, sociologists tell you, 1.2 children. And I'm not again. But the scripture tells us, full of them. They shall not be ashamed. They shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Because when you've trained those young people, they're going to be able to answer the enemy of who the Lord is and what he has done and what his word says. And one word shall fail the power of the enemy. Oh, may the Lord bless us. May he direct our thoughts in this most important area. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this is your word and you've given us such a vivid picture I pray for every mother, every father, every grandparent, those teachers who labor, the cousins, the aunts, the extended family, this church family, those who may not have children of their own or whose children have gone on to be with the Lord and yet they they love other children. They invest their lives in others. We're all a part of this, Lord. It's not just a mother and a father. May we pray for others' children. May others pray for ours. Oh, Lord, help us. We beg for your blessing. We beg for you to save our children. In Jesus' name.